Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. In June of 2020, Mississippi changed its state flag, which had been used since 1894 and was the last in the country to incorporate the Confederate battle flag in its design. Jerry Nash, co-author of the book Mississippi Politics, spent 18 months interviewing more than 70 people to uncover the drama behind the scenes at the state capitol that led to a most improbable set of circumstances and set in motion a process to improve a new flag. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin. On this episode, Jerry Nash will speak with Katie Blunt, director of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, the agency tasked with aiding the Mississippi Flag Commission that was established by the legislature and directed to select a new flag for ratification by the voters. So in June of 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, uh, the Mississippi legislature made history by retiring its controversial, Mississippi's controversial state flag that included a Confederate emblem and had flown over the state since 1894. And the story behind that is dramatic uh, and many people don't know it. And we are going to hear today from historian and author Jerry Nash, who interviewed lots and lots of people who were involved at the Capitol in those dramatic weeks of June 2020 and wove their stories into a compelling account of those historic days published in the Journal of Mississippi History. So, Jerry, June 2020, Mississippi State <laughs> Capitol, set the scene. So, as I suspect everyone knows, in Memorial Day in 2020, uh, someone by the name of George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And for a whole variety of reasons, um, the country fell apart and began to engage in a huge number of protests all over the country and it ex- extended internationally, protesting a variety of issues, um, police brutality in the black community, white supremacy, the use of Confederate symbols to represent organizations of a whole variety of protests began to take place literally within hours of his murder by some police officers in Minneapolis. No one anticipated that yet one more example of police brutality would lead to that kind of outpouring of emotion, but it did. And it continued for weeks. Well, it just so happened that on June 1, the day after Memorial Day, was the day that the Mississippi legislature had decided to reconvene. If you remember in February when the pandemic broke apart and everybody sort of shut down offices and schools and the economy, the Mississippi legislature left Jackson in the middle of its session and decided to come back the day after Memorial Day. And so by just sheer coincidence, the Mississippi legislature returns to Jackson in full force 
in the middle of or in the wake of the eruption of emotion in the George Floyd murder. One of the protests that had taken hold over those 48 hours was the Confederate flag and the use of the Confederate flag by white supremacists. And legislators coming back to Jackson, (laughs) they sort of saw what was happening and they knew what was on their flag and they were thinking, oh no, I mean, is this going to... Is this going to take hold? Is the pro- are the protests going to last long enough for this to take hold and potentially lead to momentum for changing the flag? The proponents of changing the flag in the legislature were hoping so. The opponents were, of course, hoping not. So they came back June 1 and were just sort of sitting back waiting to see how things were evolve around the country. And that sort of that sort of sets the stage. So had the session, the legislative session, taken its normal course ending in early April, the flag may not have changed. There's no question, but if there had been no pandemic, the legislature would have adjourned toward the end of March. Um, George Floyd would have been murdered on Memorial Day, and there would have been no opportunity to change the flag. As you know, the state flag is prescribed by state law, so it would take a legislative act to change the flag, and there would have been, there would have been, there would not have been enough momentum for anyone to call, for the governor to call a special session to consider that. That does not mean that it would not have been considered the following year in its regular session, um, but most people doubt that it would take place. There was just the confluence of events the first week in June um, created the momentum to consider that at the Capitol. Right. It, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Right. And it took a lot of people by surprise inside the Capitol and outside, but the truth is the, the momentum for the flag change, it may never have crested, without the timing and the pandemic and George Floyd, but it had been building for years, right? Well, I think that's a great point, Katie. Um, People who have fought for a new flag in the trenches of Mississippi politics have been doing it ever since 2001 when there was a referendum on a new flag and the 1894 flag with the Confederate symbolism had been approved by the voters 65, 66% in 2001. And there'd been a variety of activists, legislators, others, who'd literally been working ever since then to, to push for change of a flag. As we describe in the article, Lawrence Stennis developed uh, an idea for a flag and sort of got it produced, and it began to be adopted by a variety of people as an alternative flag in uh, concert with the 200th anniversary of the state that y'all held in 2017. You remember the Mississippi Economic Council created its own banner for businesses to fly in lieu of the Confederate flag. So you had the Stennis flag, you had the MEC banner, and you had a variety of people pushing other ideas And they had been in the trenches for a long time, including the Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, who came out in favor of a new flag in 2015. So they'd been bubbling um, 
some bubbling momentum for changing the flag, but nothing which was required to actually do it. There'd been a lot of support, a lot of interest, but there was a huge hill to climb, and um, we all got lucky. Right. That's right. Uh, you mentioned the Stennis flag, um, and I remember, I mean, that, that flag became very popular. People flew it on their houses. There was a license plate, um, and, and Lawrence Stennis directed the funds raised by that license plate to the Civil Rights Museum, and uh there was a lot of momentum for that flag, and then in the end, it wasn't considered. What happened with the Stennis flag? Well, um, not to put you on the spot, but um, the legislature, in passing a bill to repeal the old flag, to their everlasting credit, the piece of legislation they adopted had a section of the bill that specifically repealed the Confederate flag or the 1894 flag with a Confederate symbolism. And they created a commission to, to construct a new flag that would then be subject to a popular referendum. Um, they didn't want to tie the hands of the commission. They didn't want to prejudge anything that the commission might do. They clearly wanted a commission to come up with a new idea, something that um, everyone could get behind, and so they didn't want to adopt the MEC banner. They didn't want to adopt the Lawrence Stennis flag. There were a whole variety of flags that were being thrown around at the Capitol, and to their great credit, they said, uh -uh, this is not something you do in the legislative session. You create a commission of experts to do this and let them create a public process to allow input, um, to talk to flag experts, and try and come up with a flag that would achieve a majority approval at, at the ballot box that November. So I don't know that it was – I mean, there was some opposition to the Stennis flag, but mostly it was that they wanted a fresh start, and they wanted to let uh, a process evolve to create that. So I don't know whether the commission actually considered the Stennis flag or not. Actually, the commission – we had so when when we were charged with uh, leading this or or doing the staff work for this process um, uh, for the commission to select a new flag, uh, the first thing we did was invite public submissions, mm -hmm. and we got like three thousand of them, and multiple people submitted the Stennis flag, and then Lauren Stennis contacted us and said that she did not want it considered. Okay, well she would have had to turn over the the copyright to the state, and so of course we respected that and the the. Stennis flag was out of the running, um, but you know you're so right. It was it was brilliant of them. I mean, I could see sort of wanting to control the process, but they just put it out there. They said we want this to be wide open and public, and we were just astonished by the level of public interest in the process. And it really, I think, probably did lay the groundwork for right. what happened in November, which right. was well in November. Um the, the, the three key parts of the bill that the legislature passed that last week in June of 2020 was the specific repeal of the 1894 flag, the creation of this independent commission that had members appointed by the governor, lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the house that archives and history staffed and managed. And then third, whatever the commission, whatever one flag the commission developed would then be put on the November 2020 ballot. 
to be voted up or down. And so um, that flag was put on the ballot and 73% of the people going to the polls approved it, which if you think about it, 2020 was a presidential election year. So in Mississippi for the last 30 years, the highest turnout election has been a presidential general election. More people vote in that election than any other election that we have statewide in Mississippi. So we were guaranteed a huge turnout. And with that huge turnout, more than 73% of the people voted for it, which um, was a big deal. Definitely a big deal. It, it, it certainly was a testament, I think, to the the process the archives and history employed with the commission to develop that new flag. And the commissioners were great. They they took it seriously. They listened to the public. Um, they worked. They they sorted through every single uh, submission we had offered to, to weed out some, and they didn't want to. So they were really committed and. Uh, worked well together and it wound up being a great process well i was disappointed my my favorite flag emblem didn't make it so the, was that the mosquito, the mosquito one, yeah, yeah that was my favorite too <laughs> <laughs> there's some uh there's were some interesting and creative submissions right. and you can see them in the journal of mississippi history some of them um as you said one of the provisions of the legislation um that retired the old flag uh, declared that the words in God we trust must be a part of the new flag. And uh, I've thought a lot about this uh, since the, the flag transition. Um, it was really a reminder of how uh, in Mississippi religion is woven throughout our history uh, perhaps more than any other place. It's the in God we trust flag. Um, one of the, and we should talk more about this, one of the uh, turning points in, in building momentum for the flag change was that um, uh, faith leaders came out and spoke about the importance of, of it, the leader of the Baptist Convention and others, uh, and, and that really helped build support. And then a lot of the legislators who struggled with the decision talked about uh, their faith. And Speaker Gunn certainly did when he came out first, but some of those others who changed their minds in the closing days talked about grappling with their faith. Um, do you think that the 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 uh, leadership of the of the um, faith leaders was the key, perhaps? Well, it, here's what um, here's what I learned in doing research for the article. Um, I want to give I want to give do credit since we're being recorded here for all uh, for all time. The idea for writing the article came from my friend Andy Taggart, who he and I have written a couple of books together. And he called me the week after the legislature had passed the flag and said, Nash, let's get together. I've got a project for you. And um, his original idea, Katie, as you know, was to interview some of the key leaders and record their memories of what happened. And even if they wouldn't let us publish something right away, we could at least give archives and history the recordings. And years from now, they would be available for scholars and the memories would be fresh. They would be recorded right after the event. Well, as it turned out, as I began to record legislators, legislators would say, well, let me tell you what affected my vote. Mm -hmm. And it was the leader of the Baptist Convention or the 
this faith leader, or it was this lobbyist, or it was this coach, or it was this business leader. And so they said, you need to go interview this person, or you need to go interview that person. And I interviewed 90 people, for Pete's sakes. And that's a long, very long-winded answer to say there was no one key. Yeah, yeah. That it was, it was a coming together in a very short time span when people were facing a lot of pressure, both nationally and internationally, because of the ongoing Floyd protests, um, as well as the momentum that had been created to change the flag prior to June of 2020, all of that got pushed together within two weeks, if, if you will. But clearly, when the religious leaders held a press conference the second or third Tuesday of June, and they all came together to support a new flag, some for the first time ever going public, lobbyists I interviewed in the Capitol said that they could feel the momentum shift, Right, that their conversations began to be more serious. Now, that doesn't mean that they pushed them over the edge. It just meant that it created an environment to where people could have more meaningful conversations inside the building. Right, right. Um, you've mentioned lobbyists a couple of times, um, and there was a, a coalition of lobbyists who worked day in and day out mm-hmm. uh, trying to persuade legislators who were on the fence or opposed and and counting votes. Um was there a similar effort on the other side uh, not to change the flag? Were there people wor- in the building working it on, on the uh, side of keeping the flag? If there were, if there were paid lobbyists, um, what, what, we, what I discovered in the course of interviewing legislators was a s- small group of lobbyists who had other clients. Some were lobbyists for trade associations. Some were independent lobbyists who had a variety of clients. A small group of them had gotten together and said, we're going to sort of drop what we had to do and we're going to go do this because this is important for our children, our grandchildren, and this is a state we want to live in. And I didn't, I didn't uncover any similar effort for private lobbyists opposing the flag. And, you know, I ended up talking to 12 different lobbyists and I asked that question, Mm -hmm. who was working against you? And there were clearly legislators working against this. There were clearly unpaid activists and volunteers for the other side who were there at the Capitol every day talking. Um, They may have paid lobbyists for the sort of those volunteer efforts, but I didn't see any of that. But the, the opposition clearly had legislators working against it as well as lots of volunteer activists working against it. Sure. But no sort of, uh, no paid lobbyists, but also no major public. I mean, I don't remember any press conferences of faith leaders or coaches or university leaders opposing the flag change. The only religious denomination who um, they didn't necessarily oppose changing the flag, but they did take a position that you should not repeal the 1894 flag without a popular vote. And that was the Pentecostals. Right. And that was sort of, that was a big issue for a lot of people. A a lot of 
Members had promised their constituents that the flag wouldn't change without a public vote. That's right. Uh, talk about that and then also the, the corresponding view among the Legislative Black Caucus that to put this out to a vote was unacceptable. Right. Um, what, what became clear in the course of all the interviews, Katie, was that most, almost all of the legislators realized that the flag needed to be changed. I mean, th- 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 this was not a lobbying effort to change their minds that this was a lobbying effort to make them feel comfortable with what they could tell their constituents. That first off, many of them had promised their constituents that they would not vote to change the flag without a popular vote. There were many who had not made that commitment. There were many for whom this had not been an issue in their election, and so they had not made their commitment. But there are others that had. And some of those legislators wanted to vote to change the flag, but didn't because they felt like they owed their constituents the commitment that they had made. There were others who, quite frankly, realized that the sentiment back home had changed, that constituents had changed their minds and were now in favor of changing the flag, and so they could be released from that. Others just, quite frankly, thought this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I'm going to do this for the future of my state, and if it gets me beat, it gets me beat. Right. Several of them said that. Right. T- talked about their children and their grandchildren and not wanting to have to explain away. Right. Um, we had a, a History is Lunch program with uh, members of the legislative leadership, the speaker, the lieutenant governor, and others who played a key role uh, in in the flag transition. And the speaker talked really movingly and clearly was himself moved um, about the conversations uh, that he had with members for whom this was a really tough vote. Um, And uh, I remember he talked about Carl Oliver and and others. Um, uh, Was that something you were aware of before you uh, wrote this, before you did all these interviews? Oh, no, no. Yeah. I followed those three weeks sort of like most everybody else, just sort of at a distance. As as you remember, the pandemic was still going on yep. and places had not yet opened. And there, there was not, it was difficult to get into the Capitol because of those reasons. Um, and so you had to sort of rely on the media and others and... Um, I don't think anybody sort of at the outside of what was going on inside the building had a sense of what was motivating legislators to do what they were going to do. But I, Katie, I had the privilege of talking to 90 people for an hour and a half or two hours apiece. And they were very frank and very open. And it was a very moving experience because every legislator I interviewed had a personal story, Um, either a personal story involving a reason to change the flag, a personal story involving a family member who wanted the flag changed. Um, This was um, the way, because of the pandemic, 
um, it was hard to get into the Capitol. Legislators sort of felt enclosed, if you will. I mean, not trapped, but it was um, it was a different experience than a normal legislative session. A lot of camaraderie, a lot of talking among themselves. Right. Lots of discussions in small groups right. all over the Capitol about this issue. And th- this, this really was developed among themselves. I mean, they were clearly lots of advocates for this who were giving them reasons to think that back home they would be okay. But th- this was th- these were personal decisions that legislators were making in a once-in-a-lifetime public policy issue. And um, they, they just gutted it out and made what they thought was right for the state. Right. And, and I was really struck by it was interesting coalitions and combination, combinations of legislators who, who may not have worked closely together. I remember, I think it was Jarvis Dorch and Missy McGee mm-hmm. came together. And uh, that must have been an unusual experience in the Capitol where there's sort of party divisions and then one side of the Capitol and the other side of the Capitol. Uh, that must have been key. It was, and um, friendships friendships were solidified, mm-hmm. and new friendships began. And um, quite frankly, some friendships between people who voted for it and people voted against it were strained. Right. And right. Um, but it was it was a very personal deal. Um, uh, you've been over to the Capitol a lot, and you know what it's like. Um, you don't ever put a Mississippi legislator's back up against the wall and expect that they're going to do what you want them <laughs> yeah. to do. Um, the great thing about the, the legislature is in a serious issue like this, they, 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 they will take it seriously and they will work its way through. And any lobbyist will tell you that a, lo- a, a great lobbyist will never make it about the legislator. It will be about the issue mm-hmm. and about giving legislators choices to choose from as opposed to trying to push their back up against the wall. And um, so long as you handle it like that, they will typically make the right choice. And they certainly did this time. Um, let's uh, satisfy the political junkies out there. Um, before the vote on Sunday to take the old flag down, there was a procedural vote that had to happen that made it a whole lot harder. Explain that. So um, the Mississippi legislature operates according to deadlines. Um, and it's, it's remarkable in that they create a series of deadlines throughout the 90-day regular session. There's a deadline by which you got to introduce a bill, and if you don't get a bill introduced by that deadline, you can't introduce a bill without suspending the rules. You got There's a deadline to get a bill out of committee, a deadline to get a bill off the floor, a deadline to get a bill out of the, the other side committee, the other floor, deadline to file a conference report. I mean, it just goes on and on. So that when the legislature left the middle of February, the deadline had passed for introduction of bills. And in order for the legislature to consider changing the flag, they had to introduce a bill to do that. Well, the de- deadline had passed. So 
The only way to get past that deadline was to, quote, suspend the rules to allow for the introduction of a bill out of order. Well, Katie, that required a two-thirds vote. Now, think about this. You're asking legislators to repeal a flag that had been in effect since 1894, which contained a very, uh, what's the word we would use to describe Confederate symbolism, which which captured everyone's attention. I mean, this was not something you didn't have an opinion of. So you not only had to get a majority to pass the bill to repeal the flag, you had to pass a resolution with two-thirds of the senators and two-thirds of the representatives voting to pass that resolution to allow for a flag vote to be considered. I mean, two-thirds... It only to override a gubernatorial veto only requires a three-fifths vote. I mean, this is a two. Th- this is the highest vote required of any procedural move at the Capitol. Two-thirds of the House and the Senate, which is, I mean, the day after Memorial Day, the day after Floyd had been killed, and legislators begin talking. There, th- you know, it'll never happen. There's right. no way you'll get two-thirds vote. There's not even a majority. I mean, the lobbyists had actually done headcounts, and there wasn't even a majority, much less two-thirds. So that in a period of three weeks, um, Delbert Hoseman and Philip Gunn and the other proponents were able to get two-thirds of the Senate and two-thirds of the House to do this, which, you know, that the word extraordinary doesn't begin to capture right, what happened. Right, And then you mentioned the gubernatorial veto. Well, that's important because— Talk about the governor's response when that two-thirds vote happened. Well, um, what a number of legislators were concerned was that if they actually vote to do this and they they sort of put their careers at risk, they're going to pass a bill that then has to be approved by the governor. And the governor, up until the last week and a half of this part of the legislative session, the governor had advocated for a a popular vote. He had campaigned on it as governor. He had made statements about it before that, that um, we don't need to repeal the 1894 flag without a popular vote. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as the momentum began and the vote taking began and it became clear they were going to have to get two thirds, um, that's when at some point, very critical in that last week, the governor issued a statement that if they can get two-thirds to spend the rules, that means they can override a veto. And so um, that, that means I'm not going to veto a bill. Right. Essentially, he said, and by then everybody knew that the bill was going to contain a popular vote provision that satisfied his requirement right. that they be a vote. And um, that Wednesday before the Saturday vote, when both Tate Reeves issued that um, statement and Delbert Hoseman came out in favor of it. That was the big turning point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there are a hundred other stories I would love to ask you about. One of them is the incredible story of Senator Briggs Hobson of Vicksburg, who handled the bill on the floor uh, days after his father's death. Um, but that's why you need to read the, the <laughs> journal article, right? Um, but the one thing I think we should take away from from this story. Well, there are a lot of things, but one interesting note is that as we get farther away from a historical event, it comes to seem sort of inevitable to us. And if you read Jerry's article, if you read this article, 
you see that days before that key Saturday vote, they didn't have the votes. That's right. They were short. That's right. It was not inevitable. That's right. There was nothing inevitable about this. I mean, this was this was a confluence of events when everybody got lucky with the timing and um, everybody decided at the Capitol that we should take this seriously. And it's really, it's a, it's a huge deal for the state and um, it's a huge deal for the legislature, I think. It is a huge deal and this is the definitive account in the Journal of Mississippi <laughs> History and it will be read for many, many years to come. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin. Thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.